Lord, we just come before you. We ask you to bless this time. Give us a great anointing of your spirit as we look at what you'd have us to see. Guide and lead us. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Numbers chapter 8. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, and say unto him, When you light the lamps, and the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick, and Aaron did so, he lit the lamps thereof above against the candlestick, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this work of the candlesticks was of beaten gold unto the shaft thereof, unto the flowers thereof it was beaten work, according unto the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the candlestick. So we're gone from this time of when they offered all these big sacrifices for a week at the dedication of the of the sanctuary of the tabernacle that we talked about last week and we are seeing them going in and Moses is telling Aaron go light the candles the candle and that's the big menorah that's in the holy place it's got the seven seven bowls and and it burns the the oil that is specifically designed for that but God said do not make anything else that smells like this and it's the anointing oil, and it's a part of the menorah. And we've all seen the menorah, especially this time of the year. You see the menorahs because we're going into the Hanukkah season. And Hanukkah, if you don't know, is also called the Festival of Lights, which is mentioned in the New Testament. And it's a celebration of the Maccabees who kept the temple sealed, and they were able to burn the menorah for seven days, even though they only had enough oil. Seven or eight days? Seven. Seven, seven. days. Seven days when they only had enough oil to burn for one. So it was a great miracle that they were able to do this, keep the light on in the temple. And this, the, the pattern that they were referring to, if we're going to turn to, for just a moment to Exodus 37. Exodus 37, starting at verse 17. And he made the candlestick of pure gold of beaten work, he made the candlestick. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its knobs, its flowers were all of the same. So this thing had little bulbs and everything all down the side. And again, if you've seen menorahs, you see those little bulbs down each, each side. They've got the flower type bowl that sits on the top. 3717. Exodus. Exodus. I was in Jerusalem. And the six branches going out the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of one side thereof, and three branches out of the candlestick out of the other side, and the three bowls made after the fashions of almond in, the, in one branch, and the knob and a flower, and three bowls like in the almonds on the other branch, and a knob and a flower. So throughout the six branches going out into the candlestick, and in the candlestick were four bowls made like almonds, his knobs and his flowers, and the knob under the two branches the same, and a knob under two branches of the same, and the knob under two branches of the same, according to the six branches going out. So you end up with this thing with a whole bunch of little balls. <laughs> on each each uh, branch of the of the candle and it's got seven seven uh, uh, flames that uh, bowls that burn the flames and the, each one of them represent a characteristic of God which I don't have on my notes but we've talked about in the past that they all have a name name for the spirits of God and it represents in many ways the light that's in the in the temple that is lit we look at the seven candlesticks that God is in the presence of in, in Revelation in heaven when, when John's looking at them. And the seven candlesticks are representing the one candlestick of the menorah with seven branches. Okay? So we just wanted to bring that up, you know, try to get you the history of as we're looking at these things. This is stuff we've been talking about for many months now as we've gone through Exodus, Leviticus, 
and now we're in, in numbers, which is the actual startup of everything. So they, that's the they menorah, seven candles for seven days, the candles stayed lit without oil? Uh, the, the, in, for, for Hanukkah, for the celebration of Hanukkah. For Hanukkah. Normally they would go in every day, add oil, add oil to it, burn it for one, one full day, and then they would come in the next day and they would trim their wicks, put the oil in, and, and burn for, for a day. And that was a daily activity that the priest did in the holy place. Okay, and if you remember, you've got the holy place, you've got the menorah, you've got the altar of incense, and you've got the table of showbread. And how long did the showbread stay on the table of showbread? One week. One week. How many, how many, how many loaves were there on the showbread? Twelve. Twelve, one for each tribe. And what were they covered with? Oil and frankincense. Oil and frankincense. And who ate the showbread at the end of the week? The priest. The priest. All right. Very good. We're trying to remember these things about the, about the temple. And the altar of incense would burn the incense, which was a special formula, and it represents the prayers of, of people being, ascending into God, up unto God. So you've got the menorah giving light. You've got the, the people being represented by the bread, the showbread. And you've got the prayers of the saints being represented in the holy place. Okay, and you had the curtain, and on the other side of the curtain you had the, what, what is on the other side? Holy of Holies, what's in the Holy of Holies? Tabernacle. The mercy seat, and what's the mercy seat sit on? The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, you got the Holy of Holies, and the curtain, and then you've got the Ark of the, when the temple was built, they may not have followed the pattern that God commanded. Okay, which is why in the New Testament they always refer back to the tabernacle because the tabernacle has all the pictures of Jesus and and his blood and his sin and and the sacrifice are all pictures in the tabernacle and what they did in the temple may not be what they did with the tabernacle because Moses God told Moses be careful that you make this exactly the way that I tell you to because it is a picture of the heavenly courtroom uh, courtyard where, where God sits. Okay, and we've talked about this in various times in the past when we, when we get into this, when, when you went into a monarch's castle, you went in the front doors and you opened into the throne room. And that is where the public had access to the throne room of any castle. And that's true of even in, in Jesus' description or God's description of his court, courtyard in his throne room. Satan has access to the throne room in heaven because it is a public place. It is a place of judgment. Meeting. Well, judgment meetings, meeting place, but it's a, it's the place where judgments are made. So in Job, we see that Satan had access to the throne room of heaven where, he, where God's sitting in judgment saying, you know, what have you been doing? <laughs> he's taken his reports. He's taken, you know, what's going on? And he's going, okay, what have you been doing, Satan? You know, and and Satan says, well, I've been going around, and <laughs> we all know the story, you know, and, you know, if you consider Job, and then he left. But off of the throne room would be some meeting rooms, but then you'd get back into the private areas of the castle where nobody was allowed to go except for the family and special <laughs> invited guests. You would have off of one side of the throne would, would be the feasting, the hall for feasting. Again, basically a public area, and those two rooms just about, well, the first one, everybody can come in, the feasting area, anybody invited to a, to a public feast would be, and then there would be other dining rooms which were for family and intimate, <laughs> intimate gatherings. 
And this is the picture that we see. And this is why Moses was told, these are the dimensions. These are what you're putting in there. And they all represent the, the throne room of heaven. Okay. Now, when they built the tabernacle, who knows what rules, if any, that they obeyed. And we know that there was a holy place. We know there was a holy of holies. Mm -hmm. But what they did beyond that, we don't know fully on that. Did God tell, and I'm sorry I'm taking you off, but did God tell David? There's nothing that says that David was told, but David had plans. Okay. Well, that's what. David made lots of plans for the, tab uh, for the temple. Uh, but I don't, I'd have to read the verse you're talking about as far as doors. I don't know anything about doors between the Holy of Holy and, and the Holy Place. But that doesn't make any sense. I won't bring it back up to you. Okay. All right. Um, so they, we have this idea that now they've got, they've opened up the temple, uh, the tabernacle. <laughs> they've opened up the tabernacle and Aaron is sent in to light the menorah. And it seems that this is the first time it's been, been lit Okay, kind of, it kind of, we have an overlapping of Leviticus where we talked about the first day of Aaron's service and everything. So we're kind of, we've got a little bit of overlap here where the, that event happened in the past. His sons with the incense did it out of order and blew up in the face. No, it didn't, that God killed them. And God killed them. All right, verse 5. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them, and you shall, and thus shall you do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them, and let them shave all their flesh, and let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. Then let them take a young bullock with his meat offering, even fine meal mingled with oil, and another young bullock shall, be, shall you take for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation, and you shall gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. And you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord an offering of the for an offering of the children of Israel, that they may execute the service of the Lord. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. This should sound vaguely familiar to when the priests were being anointed and, and consecrated. If you can remember back at the beginning of Leviticus 9 when they were put into service, they did the same thing. They washed. They had offerings made for them. But we want to look at this a little closer. In verse 6 it says, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. This is a ceremonial cleansing that they're going to do. And this is how they were to cleanse. They were to sprinkle water of purifying upon them. Now, where do you get, does anybody remember where the water of purification comes from? When we talked about the priests? The what? Where the water came from for this purification? Came from the bronze laver that sits at the door of the tabernacle, at the door of the holy, holy place. The, the priests would ceremonially take water out of the laver, wash their hands, and and symbolically wash their face before they walked into the holy place. So they're taking the same water that the priests are being washed with and symbolically washing the Levites. Adam, the what basin? The laver. 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 The laver. The big bowl. <laughs> big, big, big bowl when you, re when you remember the measurements on it. So, and then, this is kind of interesting. They were to shave 
or literally pass the razor over their body is what it literally, they were to shave all the hair off their body to, to, to enter into service. And I don't know really what the whole physical purpose of the shaving of the hair was, but obviously it might have been to keep them from sweating and everything, because you weren't supposed to sweat. If, if you remember, the, the priests were given linen garments, and they were not to put wool garments on because they were not to sweat in the, tabern in the tabernacle before God as they did their job. And so God says, don't put wool on them. Don't put something that's going to make them overly hot. And it had to be a, a linen garment that would not and you got to figure they're in the middle of a desert here that's going to be hard not to sweat as they're working uh, so there was to be provided for them not to sweat and not to have any indication that they were laboring laboring in the flesh in that time and so they're they're washed and then they are to wash their clothes to make sure that they are completely clean and they're to make themselves clean and all this is in ceremony and it's a picture of how we serve God. We do not serve God in the flesh. Everything has to be cleaned. We cleanse ourselves by the washing of the water of regeneration of the word. And for, for us as Christians, we're washed in the word where the water comes over us and, and clear, cleanses us and purifies us. And the Holy Spirit comes upon us and, and all of that stuff that we do for, for service. Because if we serve in the flesh, it's rejected. And this is what God's saying. Service was to be unto him, guided by him, washed, purified, and sanctified, set aside. And it's all a picture of how we put aside our flesh and walk with, in the newness of Christ, in the, in the clothing of Jesus Christ, in the washing of the word. So this is all a picture of, of service, proper service. And this is for us as Christians. If we serve in the flesh, God rejects it. Because the word says, no flesh will stand before him. And this is something that's very important for us, especially those who, who serve God on a routine basis. They do something routinely. Those people have a hard time because they've got to make sure that they're staying in the spirit. They're doing it in the spirit and not just because, oh, you know, for a pastor, it's Sunday morning. People expect me to get up there and preach because I'm paid to preach. They expect a message. <laughs> and some many times, and I've done it myself, obviously, come up and say, I'm just not as prepared as I should be, but I'm going to and do something in my flesh. And it's not saying that people don't get blessed by it necessarily, but there's no blessing. It doesn't, it doesn't stand before God. Sunday school teachers will do that oftentimes because you're, it's Sunday morning. You're expected to teach a class. <laughs> Uh, or sometimes you're in a big church and somebody does a midweek Bible study, whether it's at home or something, or they go to the old folks' home on a Sunday afternoon and it's just, it, you know, you're the leader of it, so you've got to be there because somebody has to be there from the church. And there are times when we do these every week things that are just service in the flesh because it's expected. Now, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done, and, and we... And somebody will be upset that it's not done. Well, the sweating isn't applicable anymore, is it? Huh? The sweating and perspiring isn't applicable anymore. The picture of the sweating was work done in the flesh. It wasn't. It wasn't so much the sweating. It was. It was. An, it was a picture of you're working in the flesh. You're doing it through your own strength. Look what I did for you, Right. So it's not so much that it was the sweating, but it was what it was the picture. 
up. Because I can guarantee you most of these guys sweat at some point during that, <laughs> during their service. You know, there's just no way you're going to work, especially out in the middle of the desert. Just standing, just standing there, you're going to sweat, okay? <laughs> but the idea was you didn't put woolen garments on and stuff real heavy to make you sweat even worse and do this in your, in, but it was just this picture. It's the picture of working in the flesh is all it's all about. And we do that all the time. Everybody probably does that at some point in their, in their time. They do something just because it has to be done. Not because God, they feel God leading or directing just because it has to be done. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. <laughs> you know, when we gather together in church, we expect somebody to teach. <laughs> so somebody better be ready to teach. Now, ideally, it should be, you know, led by God, anointed by God, prayed up, confessed up, and read, ready to teach in the Spirit. But we're humans. None of us are going to be perfect in, in all of that. There, and I've shared, I shared with pastors, the shame for many of us as pastors is there's many times when we've gotten up and maybe people have been blessed, but there is no reward for what we did because we did it in our own strength, in, our, in the flesh, rather than in the Holy Spirit. And this is where you see, and I've met a pastor one time, he had about eight years worth of sermons in a drawer in a filing cabinet. He just rotated his sermons. Now, nothing new. After eight years, there was nothing new you were going to hear from this guy. And I asked him, well, do you restudy? Do you do anything? No, he goes, this is my sermon. I'm going, you know, God doesn't talk to you anymore. You know, I wasn't a pastor at that time, but it, did, it, it struck me as very funny, you know. There's places where pastors can buy sermons for each, for, for a quarter, you know, for, for any 13 weeks, and they preach what it says on, the, on these purchased sermons. You know, they fill in the outline just a little bit, but they just preach what it says. They don't get into God's Word. They're not listening to the Holy Spirit. They're not listening to God. And you go, are they really pastors? And I have some serious concern on whether they're truly a, a pastor that is feeding the flock of God the way they need to be fed. It's one thing to buy an outline that says, here, this is an outline, but even then, I would rather just go to the Word of God. The Word of God is so fresh, I can't even, I can't even preach the same scripture and teach the same lesson myself, so, because there's just so many different things to bring out. After this, in verse 8, it says, take a young bullock with his meat offering, even with fine, mingled, with fine flour mingled with oil, and so this is the meat offering they're going to presume, or the meal offering is what, how we would use it. And it had the, the animal, it had the fine flour, and what does fine flour represent? How, what, we've talked about the fine flour before. How did they make the fine flour? They ground it. They ground what specifically? All the husks off. The heart of the wheat they would take. They would, they would take the husks off. It was the, the heart of it. And they ground it into as fine as a talcum powder. This was a very special, expensive flour. It's very much like our bleached flour with no, no texture, except that this was real wheat, not, not bleached. Uh, but it was, and in that day, if we, we've talked about this before, in that day, usually when you would have flour, all they took was the wheat, threw it in a grinder and ground it up, and you had the husks and the, and when you had flour, it was very heavy flour with all the imperfections of the husk. So this fine flour represented the center, the, the, the heart of the, of the representing individuals then ground together to represent the body 
the body of believers and I ground together into one fine flower that was a perfected flower. So it's us as Christians being ground together into one body and not being separated and and not taking and taking the, the old out, the old life out in the husk. Okay, so this flower was a representation of the congregation. Does that make sense? We've talked about this before. Yeah, I missed that. <laughs> and then they add to the and to the flower they add the whole uh, add the oil which represents the Holy Spirit. So you've got the individuals being ground together in one mixed with the Holy Spirit to make the cakes for the offering for the meal offering to God. Again, pictures of us as the church, us as the as the body of Christ, ground together, mixed with the Holy Spirit, then offered back to God as a living sacrifice. Okay? So we see the pictures that are in this. All of these sacrifices and everything are so full of pictures of us and Christ. And then in the second half, another young bullock was taken and was to take for a sin offering. And the sin offering was to cover the sin. It was to be, to be sacrificed. Nobody ate of the sin offering, but they only offered a small portion of it. And in verse 9, And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. And this is just what they did with the priests. They brought the priests all together when they anointed them and brought the congregation together. So this is a big celebration. It's a celebration saying we're going to dedicate workers for the sanctuary. And if you remember back, in the, back when we did the numbers, there's a couple thousand Levites that are doing this service. All right, verse 10. And you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel, Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord for an offering of the people of Israel that they may execute or serve in the labor in the service of the Lord. So here we are. They brought all the Levites out and the people were to put their hands on the Levites. And does anybody remember what God has done with the Levites? Why are the Levites serving in the temple? Does anybody remember? They're the eldest. They're the replacement for the eldest child. They're the, the replacement for all the firstborns. God said all the firstborns were his. And he says specifically, and we're going to see that later on in here, he says specifically, I purchased you in Egypt when I killed the firstborns. And he, and he saved them because of the Passover lamb. So he said, you belong to me. You should have died, but I purchased you. You are mine. And so the, so the firstborn of all the, all the people belong to God. So God says, rather than giving me the firstborn of all the families... And we studied this a couple weeks ago. Give me the entire tribe of Levi. The entire tribe of Levi will be mine. And then there wasn't enough Levites to purchase, to, to redeem all the firstborn. So then, they, then the people all had to give this offering to the Lord to, as a money offering for the, I think it was 500 or something that weren't enough Levites for so there was this idea that God purchased the Levites. They were his special people amongst all of the special people that were his. Okay? The entire Israelite nation was his. And then he says, okay, you're all mine, but the, the ones that are really, truly mine are the Levites. And he took the entire tribe of Levite, and they're not, and the tribe of Levi will not in the future here get a... Uh, territory in the promised land 
they're going to be given cities. Okay, because they belong to God and there's a different, so God is their inheritance is, is how he tells them. So he's taking them, and the people were to put their hands on them because they were representing an offering. Okay, and many times in the offerings, when you gave a sin offering, you were to put your hands upon the sin offering in a symbolic transference of your sins upon the offering. And in this case, it's a symbolic thing of I'm supposed to be serving, now you're serving in my place. And this is where God desires this dedication. And we see it oftentimes when somebody will step up to be a pastor or a deacon or something. A lot of times there'll be the the special prayer and the dedication of that individual for service to God rather than the whole church serving in that capacity. And it's just to say, okay, this person has been dedicated. They're, they're representing us before God. And it's a very powerful thing when it's done. And it's a, oftentimes it involves the laying on of hands to, by not everybody in the church, but a handful of people in the church laying their hands on that person. But this is what they're doing. They're dedicating the Levites to service, to the service of God. They are not going to go out and herd goats and... And, and fields, they, they were to come in and they kept, and you, if we look at all the things they were doing, they, they, they're going to carry everything in the tabernacle everywhere they go. Their, their job is to carry the materials for the tabernacle. And we looked a couple weeks ago, uh, last week, about how God allocated carts to them for, the, for what they were carrying. And one, of the, and one of the groups did not get any carts because what they were responsible to carry was the Ark of the Covenant and the altars and the, and the table of showbread, which had to be carried, the, holy, the things in the holy place and the holy of holies had to be carried by staves on their shoulders. So the, the tribe of Levite that had to carry those didn't get any wagons because they had to carry it themselves. And we have the story of when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to, back to Jerusalem and the man steps out and you know they put it on a cart. They didn't do it the right way. They put it on a cart and it hit a bump and he went out to steady it and he was struck dead because he dared to touch the Ark of the Covenant because it wasn't being carried correctly. And David stopped and just left the, left the Ark where it was at and wouldn't, wouldn't bring it into Jerusalem because of his terror of God because of it not being done right. And God will do this often. If we don't do things his way, he will not let us get, get credit for it. He will put judgment upon things oftentimes when it's not done his way. And here God is saying, we're doing it our way. We're sanctifying these guys. They've got jobs to do. They've got specific things that they're going to do. And then verse 12, And the Levites shall lay their hands upon the heads of the bullock, and they shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for the Levites. Okay, so they've got two more bullocks they're offering. One is, one is for the sin offering, and the sin offering is to cover the sin. And the burnt offering, what does the burnt offering represent? God. Offering to God. It's an offering to God, but what does it represent? Sin. No, no. not the burnt offering. Thanksgiving it's total dedication to God. I'm giving myself completely to God. And that's what the burnt offering is all about. Okay, we've covered this before. I'm trying to, trying to, I'm going to keep repeating this so we get this all down in our heads. But you've got 
So you've got five offerings, remember, and when you see the offering, you want to know what offering are they talking about when they're, when they're bringing these offerings in. But the burnt offering is an offering of we are dedicating myself completely to God, and rather than burning myself, <laughs> I'm going to burn this animal in a symbolic representation that I am giving myself completely to God. And the only thing that's not burnt on the animal was the hide, which was skinned and given to the priest that offered the burnt offering. He took the covering of the animal, and then it was totally dedicated to God. So this is an offering that says, God, and this was a voluntary offering, except in various situations like this one. It was, God, I'm coming to you, and I want to show you that I'm dedicated to you. So how I'm dedicating myself to you and showing this to everybody is, I'm offering this animal to die in my place. Were they pure? Completely. Were they pure? It should have been unblemished, yes. Unblemished, yeah. Okay. All sacrifices were unblemished. Okay. So they, went, they came in, they offered a sin offering, a burnt offering, and this one wasn't a voluntary one. This one, one said, you are my servant, so you were going to demonstrate this by giving a burnt offering. So this was not the normal, normal uh, voluntary. And they... And they put their hands on the head of the burnt off, of the sin offering. And then verse 13. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and before his sons and offer them for an offering unto the Lord. Thus shall you separate the Levites from among the children of Israel and the Levites, and the Levites shall be mine. Okay, now they're not killing them. They're just saying these, all of these people belong to God. We've offered their sacrifices they are gods, and they're put before the priests. Okay, the priests are standing there seeing this because the priests also were representing God in this in this ritual, this ritual setting. All right, and we're seeing them come up and say, they're 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 gods, mm -hmm. and God's repeated this several times now through this book. The Levites are mine. I bought them. I have redeemed them. They are mine. They, they have taken them instead of taking the firstborn of all your families. And basically he's telling the Jews, because I could have taken your firstborn, you treat these guys correctly. Because they're representing, they've been redeemed by me instead of you losing your oldest sons. Okay? And that's what he's saying to these people. And this is why the Levites are supposed to be very special to the, the Israelite people because they represent the, him not taken the firstborn of every generation. Okay? Because if he hadn't taken the whole tribe of Levi, every time somebody had their firstborn, they, were supposed, they would have had to have taken them to the temple and say, okay, here's my firstborn, God. You know, he's now, my firstborn's going to serve you. And if you only had one child, that's a pretty big uh, sacrifice. Especially one, one male. So... This is a big deal for them. Big picture that God is saying, I, these are mine. You've, I've taken them instead of taking your first firstborns. And that was all the animals and everything. Okay? If he hadn't taken the Levite and their animals and everything they owned, then he would have taken the firstborn of everything. The cattle, the people. Uh, so this is a huge deal that God is putting in front of them. And then it says in verse 15, And after that shall the Levites go to do service in the tabernacle of the congregation, and, shall, you, and you shall cleanse them and offer them for an offering. They, for they are wholly given unto me among the children of Israel, instead of such as open every womb. 
even in the firstborn of all the children of Israel, I have taken them unto me. Okay, so again, we just talked about this. This comes from Numbers 3. We talked about the numbers of, of uh, Levites that there were. Verse 17, For all the firstborn of the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. Okay, so this is his reasoning why the firstborns all belong to him. He goes, okay, I rescued you in Egypt. I saved your firstborns by, by the, the Passover lamb, and you, you did what you were supposed to, but I purchased them by that mercy that I showed you. I showed you mercy. I showed your firstborn mercy, they, but they, because of that, they belong to me. We as Christians belong to God. Because he purchased us with this blood of his son. He purchased us. We belong to him. Out of all the world, the Christians who accept that sacrifice belong to him. Which means that he can tell us what to do. Okay? He could have told us anyway because he is the one that created us. We have our life because of him. But we are doubly owned by him. He created us, gave us existence, and then he purchased us. So we're doubly his. So we, can't, we should not be able to say, we can't say to God, well, God, I just don't think I want to do that. <laughs> now, we do that quite often, but we're not supposed to because he owns every part of us. And when we really turn our lives over to him to live in, in the way he wants, he's not going to hurt us. He's not trying to hurt us. He's trying to bless us. He's trying to give us service to do. And if nothing else, we get such great reward in heaven. Even if we suffer on this earth, the reward in heaven is great. Because he looks at us and says, you've done what I've asked. Now, if we suffer because of the bad things we do, he's going to go, well, you're getting what you deserve. But I'm going to give you some, but he'll still give us the grace to go through even that. The one thing we've got to understand with God is everything about dealing with God is through his grace. He loves us. He has bought us. He keeps us. He gives us strength to go forward and all that we do. He gives us, he gives us what we're supposed to do. He, he's the one that kills the flesh and lives in us so that we can do it. God's grace is wonderful. And we don't fully understand grace. And this is one of those many things that when we think we understand grace, a year or two from now, God will show us that we never even understood grace at all back, back then. And, and we may think that we understand it then. And then another couple of years, he'll say, you don't understand grace. So just accept that you'll never understand his grace. You'll never understand his mercy. We'll never understand his love completely because he is so much more than we are that every time we think we know anything about God, he'll show us that we just know the tiniest bit about him. And he's going to show us a couple down the road that, see, I'm much more. <laughs> he's always much more than whatever I think. And when you've walked with him for 80 years and, you're, and you think you know him, he's still going to be much more than what you understand. And you might understand much more than what most people understand, but he's still, you understand just the littlest part about who God is. He's always going to be much more. Much more than anything we think that he is. And that's why I love talking about how big is God? Mm. You know, how big do you think God is? Okay. Add, but multiply it by a thousand and you might get closer to what he is you know multiply it by a billion <laughs> you know how how strong do you think god is <laughs> you know whatever you think about his strength multiply it you know by the biggest number you can think of and you still aren't close to how big he is 
How much does he love us? <laughs> However much you think he loves you, add to it. You know, and this is true of any aspect of God that you want to look at. How big, how big do you think that aspect is? Well, Multiply it by the biggest number you have and you're still not going to have how big he is. We can add to it, but he'll still be more. He'll still be more. He will always be more than anything we think about him. Because we cannot know him. And this is why in heaven I truly believe we're going to be learning for all of eternity because there's always going to be something new to learn about God. Because he's always going to be much more. When we've been with him for a hundred billion years, we're still just beginning to know him because of how great he is as God. And that's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom, but he will always be higher than we are. His thoughts will always be greater than our thoughts. His, his ways will always be greater than our ways, even when we've been with him in heaven in a perfect existence for billions of years. He'll still be greater <laughs> than, any, than us because he will always be God. He will always know things that we don't know. And I've heard people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'll know all things. No, you'll know a lot of things, but you're not going to know all things because if you knew all things, you'd be God. Mm-hmm. And he's always going to know more than we know. So we can never know all things. We can never have all strength. We'll never, you know, there's always going to be this growing in knowing him, getting to know him more for all of eternity. Knowing him is just not something I really comprehend. Just wanting to be with him and see him and to smell him and feel him and touch his foot or... <laughs> yep. Verse 18, I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel. Verse 19, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of the congregation and to make atonement for the children of Israel that, that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come nigh into the sanctuary. So this is the picture. God says, the, the Levites belong to me, but Aaron, I'm giving them to you. They're to serve Aaron in the temple and Aaron in the, the whole priest, the Aaronic priesthood. They were, the Levites were given to the, the priesthood to say, they're to help you. Whatever you need, they're to help. They're to keep themselves precious with God. They're to keep themselves consecrated so that no plague will come. And we think about this, the plagues. There's so many plagues that are going to come, come their way when people are disobedient and they come to God and God judges them. We see the, we're going to see the Korite rebellion in the book of Numbers where Korite, or the Levites, the, the Korite family, rebel against Moses and saying, well, who do you think you are that you're so special? And God's going to open up the ground and swallow them in, into the ground with everybody who's on their side. Then he's going to send snakes into the vipers in to kill people that aren't going to believe. You know, all these things have happened because of people's rebellion against God. And he's saying the Levites are to keep themselves consecrated so that these won't happen. That, that there will be individuals who are ministering to before me that are following the things that I have told them to do. And this is where, where we as Christians, and Paul, Paul, remember in Corinthians where he said, to the Corinthians, some of you are sick because you're not honoring God correctly in communion. 
You're not confessing your sins. You're, you're, you're not honoring God in communion. And many of you are sick to the point of death because of not following the procedures, not, not honoring him in, in the right way. And God does judge incorrect activities. When we know to do right and we don't, we look at... Uh, the names jumped right out of my head. The two, two individuals that said they gave an offer. Uh, Ananias, sold, and Ananias and Sapphira. They came and said, you know, you know, we sold this property and we gave and we're giving all the money to the church and they kept back part of it. And God struck them dead. Now, did he strike them dead because they kept back part of the money? No, he, they, kept, they were struck dead because they, they lied. They wanted people to think that they were spiritual, more spiritual than they were. And it wouldn't have been no problem. Here's half the money that we, we sold, the, sold the property for. We're given half of it. There would have been no problem with that because that was much more than the tenth, you know, the tithe. That was, and it would have been a great gift. But because they tried to make others think that they were more special than they were, then they were struck dead. God still does that kind of stuff. It may not be as... as strong as it was back then they may not die that instant because God gives a little bit of mercy saying okay are you going to correct yourself but many people in churches are suffering because they were trying to make people think that there's something they weren't you know I've been given my tithes you know you'll hear people talk about I give my tithes as they give a hundred dollars instead of five hundred dollars or whatever and then people but they'll talk about I'm giving tithes can I I give my tithes, but we don't want to talk about all the many, 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 many years that I did it. Yeah. And there's suffering that happens when we when we don't do things God's way. He will put suffering upon us. And then we look and say, well, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm good. I haven't done anything wrong. And God's saying, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And... It's important for us to understand. I'm pictized for just whatever reason of Ananias and Sapphira, but uh, you know, but anything that God has told you to do, when when God told Abraham to leave the Ur of Chaldees, He said, "Leave your family behind, and and go to where I tell you." So he ended up in Haran, and he didn't leave his family behind. He took his dad and his and his uncle and his brother and and Lot and you know. He had all these things he took with him, and he got stuck in Haran for about 20 years until his dad died. And then he's like, okay, uh, you know, then he finally decided to be obedient, and he still left, and he still was disobedient because he brought his nephew, Lot. And we saw what happened with Lot in the Sodom and Gomorrah and the battles that his, his people had with Abraham's people. There, so much that has gone on in this world because Abraham wasn't obedient to what God said to do. And we see Lot's family leading into Edom and, uh, and Amorites. So all this was happening. He was disobedient and he got two enemies. He was disobedient and not waiting for, for Isaac. And we had Ishmael being born. And Ishmael had almost every country in the in the, in the in the Canaan belongs to, to his relatives. And still to this day, Ishmael's family is, is the thorn in the side of Israel as they're trying to get rid of them. And they, they say because Ishmael was the firstborn that the birthright belonged to them, so the land belongs to Ishmael is the, is the way that they look at it. Right. Even though God chose Isaac. 
So mm -hmm. they're saying, but the law says that the land belongs to Ishmael because he was the firstborn. And they're correct as far as the law of the land goes. But God said, no, it belongs to Isaac. And we have this battle that's been going on ever since and to this day. And they're even justified in feeling that way because Hagar wasn't, she birthed him, but she wasn't his mother. She, because she was her slave, he was, his mother was Sarah, so it was Sarah's first child. Legally, and legally, yeah. That's where they're coming from, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all this problem that comes from that, and it's all because of disobedience. And we see this in families frequently where, where there's disobedience, and then people go, well, why, why are my kids or grandkids uh, this way? Well, if you had done what God said and raised them in the, in the word of God, and you followed, you know, not mixed marriages, you know, uh, where it's non-Christian and Christian and and you raised your kids up in, in, in Christianity and didn't have all these problems, you might not have had the same problems. And that doesn't mean an absolute 100% blanket, you know, if you raise your kids right, they're gonna be good. You know, you can do everything right and still have a kid go wrong. You know, all you gotta do is look at Adam and Eve. You know, they didn't even have a sin nature and they went wrong. Right. Okay, but it's a guarantee almost that if you don't bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and bringing them to church and, and dedicating them to God and teaching them to pray and getting in the word with them, you can almost guarantee that your kids are going to turn out wrong unless God mercifully changes that. And that's, he can do that too. But God told us men in the scriptures, we are responsible to train up our children. And if the man doesn't train up his children, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to go off. And we see this so much. And women will women take their kids to church, but especially for the boys, they get old enough and they start looking and dad's not going to church. And they go, well, why do I have to go to church if dad's not going to church? And they get this picture that church is for women. And you get so many places where Sunday school teachers are almost all women when they're kids. The first time a, a boy is going to see a man teaching him might be when he be, gets into be teenage classes. And that's a sad statement in most churches. It's not a good thing for them. But it happens, and we're, you know, we're praise God for the women who, who step forward to do it. But men need to step forward and say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to, I'm going to raise these, help raise these kids. Annie? I didn't really. Kids need to see a male figure, uh, and it's because it, it sits in the back of their mind, especially boys. The yes. boys have to see a man serving God. And it is tough in small churches. The smaller your church is, the harder it is. But even big churches have a problem a lot of times with men teaching, being in teaching positions. And they shouldn't have that problem because there's more men to pick from. I've been in places where it was almost all men teaching the kids. And it was wonderful because the kids would see men teaching them all the way from the, from pretty much the youngest age up. And there's that little difference, that little difference when, when children see their father teaching them. This is what God says. This is what God expects. Then there's that, oh yeah, this is a manly thing. And we, we have too many people that think that Christianity is a, a feminine, you know, weak religion to follow and yet God talks about it very strongly you know 
Be strong. Stand in the Lord. Fix yourself like men. Be ready to battle. God talks about battles. He talks about battles, and I can tell you from experience, most of the women in Sunday school really don't bring out this battle idea with the kids. There are exceptions, but most of them don't because that's not what they look at. You know, boys want that, you know, strong. This is a strong place. And we look at the scriptures. It talks about battles all the time, spiritual battles and, and real battles. We sat under a pastor for many years. He said, get some guts and stand up for God. Okay. And didn't resonate so much with the women, but the guys knew what he was talking about because that's the kind of language you heard in the football field. You know, man up, get some guts, and you know, and 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 do so, and get move forward. You know, uh, and so this is what men want that challenge, need that challenge, because here we see it in the here. God says, "I'm taking the Levites; they are mine. They're going to serve me, whether they want to or not. They're going to serve me." instead of all your firstborn. So you guys all rejoice because you didn't lose all your first, you didn't lose your firstborns, I'm taking all of these ones. And so this is very important for us to look at. And so in verse 20, Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did the children of Israel to them. And the Levites were purified and they washed their clothes and Aaron offered them as an offering before the Lord, and Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that went the Levites to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before the sons, and the Lord, as the Lord commanded them, Moses concerning the Levites, so did they. So after all the stuff was done, they say, okay, here's your work. Here's your work you're going to do. That had to be so exciting. I don't know, it depends on, it would be very exciting for those who didn't have to do the work, but it may not be so exciting for the Levites necessarily. I mean, but the occasion was a big celebration. This was a big celebration. These people are being picked instead of you, and they're going to get the pleasure, the privilege of serving. And this is important because I feel that same way. I feel that it's a pleasure that, uh, that I get to serve at this church. You know, and I really love the teaching part, but also when I'm vacuuming or cleaning or or just organizing something it's just a privilege to be able to serve the body of Christ and be able to just do things for what needs to be done it's a great privilege at least I take it that way and I think it should be taken that way just a privilege to be able to serve and not I don't take it lightly and I don't get offended now, I've had people go, well, why do you do so many things? Because it needs to be done, and God's, God's put me in a place where I could. And we are to serve. The, the pastor is a servant to the church. Yes, they get to preach the messages and everything, but they're not, they're not special and put them up on a pedestal because of who they are. And I've got lots of pastors. I like to listen to them, and I don't really know them other than what I know about them through their messages, but I can hear in their voice and many of them that they are servants to the people because you can hear it in their stories about how they help different people and go out and do things. Now granted, the bigger your church is, the less you do of the actual serving and then you get Levites underneath you who are doing the, the serving. What helped me and maybe all, all of you is uh, no job is too big or small for a real person yeah. to stand up and do it. It's no job is too big or small for a real person to do. Right. You know, 
don't be afraid to do a little job. Or, little know, jobs have to be done. Because, yeah, the little if the little jobs don't get done, you'll notice real quick. And it's the same thing I've shared with people. If you've got somebody who's the janitor or the cleaner of the church and they, and they miss a couple weeks, you'll know very quickly how important their job was. Yeah, especially when you open the door to the restroom. Yeah, no, whatever, you, any, any part of it. Any part of it, you know, it's things not picked up, not, you know, not, not cleaned up. You notice it very quickly, even though you may not know who they are for it, you know, from anybody else in the church because it's not somebody, you don't usually get the guy to stand up. And here's the janitor of the church, you know, this is the one, you know, they usually are totally anonymous and there's only a handful of people who even know who they are in most cases. And little jobs, but God rewards those little jobs in a great way because they're just as important as any other quote-unquote big job. And if they're not, if the little job is not done, you notice it. And you notice it fairly quickly. And very important. We're going to tie this up real quick. It's just the last little bit. Verse 23. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, This is that belongs to the Levites. From 25 years old upward, they shall go wait in service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So the Levites would start working at 25. That's pretty old in this, in, this, uh, in this environment because usually you were working. If you could walk and talk, you were out in the fields doing things. But to work in the temple or the tabernacle, you had to be 25. Yeah, some maturity, some responsibility level. Uh, you're, you're grown into a, man, a young man at this point. You've probably tended the sheep and the farms and whatever else needed to be done. So at 25, you started working. And from the age of 50 years old, they shall cease waiting on service. So you only worked for 25 years in the tabernacle, and the, ta the tabernacle was a Levite. So from 25 to 50, you worked in the tabernacle. And then, and they shall serve no more, but shall minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of the congregation to keep charge and shall do no service. Thus shall you do unto the Levites touching their charge. So after 25 years old, they basically became disciplers. They would work with the guys and say, this is how you do the job. But they couldn't go in and do the job. They were the ones that were instructors. They were the ones that were supervising the work, telling them what had to be done, how to do it. They were the trainers type deal without doing the work. They would take the guys under the wings. They'd probably take the kids under the wings too. You know, Okay, I want to teach you when you get in here. You're, you're almost 25, so we're going to teach you when you get in there, this is what you're going to do. I'm no longer serving, but I'm going to tell you how you do the service. Wasn't saying they were throwaway, and this is where we are. We're never throwaway for God. There's always things for us to do. But oftentimes, the older we get and the more mature we are, God transitions us from the actual doing of a, of a ministry to a teaching others to do the ministry. And it's important that we make that transition. Not that I retire completely from the work, and I've seen churches where somebody gets older and they go, well, I'm just retired, I'm not doing, I'm not gonna do anything. Well, we still need mentors, we still need people, we still need mature Christian couples teaching young couples how to be, you know, parents and couples. We need, we need people who have done the service to teach people how to do service. I've slowly been transitioned in the Sunday school area where I always worked with kids. And God has moved me more to where I'm training people to work with kids. 
and being able to expand outward and say, okay, instead of doing kids, I'm now teaching adults so that they can minister to kids. And so we, we step up into a more of a teaching mode of the next generation. Because if we don't teach the next generation how to behave in a Christian manner, we're going to lose everything. And we are losing everything. We, we are we're not using our couples that know how to be a godly married couple and mentoring young people who have no idea what it means to be a godly couple. And it's very scary out there. It's very scary out in this world where Satan is destroying the picture of marriage. And you start seeing these people getting married that don't even know what it means to be a husband and wife or a father and mother. And then they get kids and they don't, you know, and then people all blame them because they don't, you know, they're not teaching their kids how to be godly kids, but they don't know how to do it. And we're not getting our older couples coming along beside them and saying, I just want to help you. I just want to help you. If you allow me, I will help teach you how to, how to do whatever it is, how to be a father, how to be a mother, how to be a husband, how to be a wife. Because it is not natural to be a godly husband. It is not natural to be a godly wife. It is not natural to be a godly father. It is not natural to be a godly mother. It, yes, you can learn it the hard way. You can sit there and study the scriptures and learn it the hard way. But almost everybody in all my experience learns a whole lot better when they're shown how to do something. And it's been, when I was a manager and training people, I always had to show them how to do something. Very few people could be handed the instruction manual and say, okay, here's the, here's the operations manual, go to it. You know, most people don't learn that. Yes, there are a small, small group of people that can learn by handing them an operations manual and say, here's your book, go do it. Most people need to be shown. And in the past, it's been their mother, their mother and father that showed them how to be a godly parent. But in our day where the families are being ripped apart, we need people to step forward and say, this is how you are a godly father. This is how you're a godly mother. This is how you're a godly husband or godly, godly uh, wife. This is how you serve God in teaching. This is how you serve God in, 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 as a deacon, whatever, whatever it is that needs to be taught. Somebody needs to show others how to do it. And our challenge is for that to happen. And our challenge for each one of us is, God, where am I supposed to be? Where am I? And, and it may not always be maturity, physical maturity that says, okay, you're the, you're, it can be a spiritual maturity. You can have somebody in their 30s or 40s who knows what it means to be a godly husband, wife, father, mother, servant, teacher, who can teach others because they've been around long enough and gained maturity in Christ. And I've seen many people that have been in churches all their life that haven't grown. And it's scary. Uh, and, I, and I've told everybody the story around here. I taught, as, as a 30-year-old, I taught a class of, of senior men. I was scared to death of that class because I'm figuring, what can I, as a you know, 30-something, teach these guys who have been in church longer than, been in church longer than I've been alive? And then come to find out they didn't know anything more than anybody else that I'd ever taught. And it made me very sad. These guys had been in church for 40, 50, you know, 60 years, cradled to, cradled to the time I was teaching them and had not learned God's word. And many of them had been Sunday school teachers and deacons and you know, the leaders of the church. 
And I got to thinking, what were they teaching people? What were they teaching something when something simple is, is new to them? And it really shocked me. And it's challenged me to make sure that when I teach people, I get that they understand. Not just a bunch of facts, not just a bunch of stories, but they understand what does it mean? Why is it important? Because that's our challenge when we're in God's Word. It's not just a book that we read for reading's sake. It's a book that guides us in our life. And it's a book, as I've said, I've studied it for over 40 years, and it's still fresh and brand new every time I study it. And there's always something new to, to discover because it's a living book, and it'll guide us for the rest of our life. But the more we study it, the deeper it's going to go, and the more we're going to see God. And it's just a fantastic thing to do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the challenge, Lord, to serve you and to go forward. Lord, we ask that you guide and lead us in all that we do, and help us as we go forward in your son's name. Amen.